Stumbled on to Firefire's Firefetched Fables, the home of tall tales, old chestnuts, fish stories, and other unassorted yarns. We mostly cater to the youngins here, but you grown-ups can have a listen too. If you have a mind to, tap on the subscribe button, whatever that is, or like us on the Facebook. In the meantime, turn off the TV, put down the cell phone, get yourself a glass of warm milk, and settle in for some old-time storytelling. Tonight's episode... Chapter 3, Paul's Boyhood Though many of the facts concerning Paul Bunyan's boyhood are still enshrouded in mystery, enough are known to show how, from the very beginning, he began to develop those characteristics which made him so famous in afterlife. The first task which confronted Paul's father, after he had finally found a suitable location for the new home, was the construction of a house. This was a tremendous labor for one man to attempt. For this time, he planned to build a habitation that would not only accommodate his rapidly growing young son while he remained an infant, but also afford him plenty of growing room through all the years that must ensue ere he should reach manhood. I am determined that he shall not outgrow his father's house again, Mr. Bunyan explained to the boy's mother. This time I intend to build a cabin that will shelter him until he is grown and able to strike out for himself. Why, just think how dangerous it would would be to build a house that is just large enough for him now and then have him some night while he is inside suddenly grow too big for the place. We might never be able to get him out. So he set to work right manfully, hewing down great trees, shaping them and notching them and piling them near at hand until he should be ready to start rearing the walls. Young Paul, of course, stirred by the insatiable curiosity which was always characteristic of him, crawled and rolled among the chips and shavings where his father worked, taking great interest in all that was done. His father's tools became his playthings, and never was he happier than when he was able to get hold of a sharp axe and, in his baby way, chip and batter a tough tamarack stump into dust or beaver a great pine log into small pieces. He cut most of his teeth on a broad axe, gnawing it so badly out of shape in the process that his father could never use it again. Thus it can readily be seen that his earliest interests were for the things of the woods, and it is not strange that these interests should have persisted and grown stronger through all the years of his life. His father proceeded apace with the new house, and in a shorter time than one would think, he had it completed. Both he and his wife were very proud of it, and greatly pleased to know that they at last were again able to have their little son under the same roof with them. It is regrettable that the figures of its dimensions have been lost, for it was in every way a most remarkable structure, fully equal to the task of sheltering a presidential convention or a six-ring circus, had such things existed in those days, 
without overtaxing its capacity. The new home was far from any settlement, but Paul's father believed that he might be able to get in touch with the outside world once more by floating down the river which flowed nearby. <clears throat> Judging that the fine timber which stood so thickly in every direction would bring a good price if it only it could be delivered to a mill, he cut down a great many trees, made the logs into a raft, and floated down the river. His experiment was highly successful, and after several weeks he came stalking back through the forest, burdened down with a huge pack of fresh supplies for which he had exchanged his logs. Pleased over finding a market for his timber, he set to work again and soon had a much greater store of logs ready to take to the mill. Paul, who was by this time big enough so that he had just been put into his first pair of pants, and who was feeling himself quite a man as a consequence, had, as usual, been watching with the greatest interest all that his father did, and imitating in his play the labor of his parent. Seeing the great piles of logs which lay beside the river, ready for the making of a big raft, he became quite energetic in carrying out a new idea that suddenly stirred him. When his father came that way shortly afterward, he was struck with the strange change that had taken place. Where are the logs? he shouted and called up to the cabin for his wife to come at once. What can have happened to all the logs that were piled here? He asked her in bewilderment, pointing to the empty banks of the stream. But she was as astonished as he and could not give up the last bit of help in the matter. Then all at once, a worried look came into her eyes, and she turned to him. And Paul, where is Paul? She cried. He was playing near this very spot just a short while ago. I'll bet that youngster has something to do with the my missing logs, growled his father. I'll soon find him all right. He must have drifted down river with them. So off he started hurrying along the bank and keeping sharp eyes turned on the stream where he expected every moment to see some sign of his young son in company with the disappearing logs. He began to doubt his solution of the mystery, however, after he traveled for many miles and not, had not yet found the least evidence of boy or timber having recently come that way. Then all at once he knew that he was on the right track for a log, one of the missing ones, he was sure, drifted past him. He was surprised that it should have come from above him. But back he turned and hurriedly retraced his steps. He was beginning to share some of his wife's worries about their missing son. And he moved along as fast as his feet would carry him. It was almost night when he finally overtook Paul and the logs, far up the river, past the cabin. The child, thinking to imitate his father, had dumped all the logs into the stream and, in his unavailing attempts to make them into a raft as he had seen his father do once before, he had become confused in his directions. As a result, he had headed up the river instead of the other direction and, aided only by a long, tough pole, he had taken the drive upstream against the strong current. 
From pulling so many logs up over rapids and waterfalls, the child was very tired when his father finally caught up with him. And he was quite willing to abandon his play and trot along home to supper. As Paul grew a little older, he got into the habit of wandering far away from home, and often his father had to make long searches for him. Finally, in order to make the boy's tracks easy to follow on his future excursions, his father fixed his son's initials on the bottoms of his shoes with big hobnails. As a result, wherever Paul went, he left his mark with every track. He was so young that he didn't notice this much at first, but nothing ever escaped him long. And when he did discover it, he began to get a great deal of fun out of stamping his initials into everything he came to. It was not very long before all the trees, rocks, and everything else for miles around bore the evidence of his new sport, so that it soon became hard for him to find a place where he could stamp P.B., without having the new letters become lost among the thousands of earlier sets of his initials. He was tickled when he finally found a nice, smooth, unmarked surface, even though it was in a somewhat awkward position. He soon discovered how to make use of it, however, and it was a sight well worth seeing to see him perform his newest stunt. He would stand in the middle of the cabin floor, jump straight up in a sort of flip-flop and stamp... P.B. on the ceiling above where he had just stood. He had to stop doing this one day, sad to relate, on account of the strange disaster which befell him. Seeking to impress his initials on the cabin ceiling, extra hard this time, he stamped with such force that his feet went right on through the ceiling and ripped the roof off the house. He was very big for his age, of course, but he was never clumsy, as many boys are. Once, the first time he ever went hunting, he sneaked his father's old shotgun out of the house and set forth to see what he could find. He kept his sharp eyes wide open, and at last he saw a deer stick its head around a tree four or five miles away. He blazed away at the animal with the old gun, and then was so anxious to see if he had killed it that he started for the spot, lippity-cut. He ran so fast that he outran the load he had fired from the gun, with the result that he got the full charge of buckshot in the seat of his breeches. Ow! So as one can readily see, his size did not in the least interfere with his spryness. Even when he was an old man, or what could be old for most men, he was so quick on his feet that he could blow out the light on the bunkhouse at night and be in bed and asleep before the room got dark. As the years of his boyhood went on, he continued to get bigger and stronger and quicker of action, as well as becoming better versed in everything that pertained to the woods. He was learning that he seldom dared to exert his full strength, so powerful was he in every way, for fear of the damage he might do. He was only about 14 or 15 years old when he found out that he could kill a whole pond full of bullfrogs just with one yell. 
and as his voice was getting stronger all the time, he had to watch closely and always speak softly, or else the tremendous sound would stun everyone within hearing, or perhaps flatten out a few houses. During the later years that intervened before Paul once more appeared, a grown man in the height of his powers, near the place of his birth along the coast of Maine, he managed to secure two assets, a loving wife and babe, the great blue ox. Oh, yes, there was Jim, his pet crow, also, but Jim could hardly be called an asset as he was usually getting into mischief. There are a few rumors about Paul's courtship, which may give an idea as to what a good match for him Mrs. Paul really was. Paul, having grown to a young manhood in the far back woods, had never had much of a chance for paying attention to the ladies, and accordingly he was somewhat bashful. One day, however, while out on one of his long rambles, he heard a woman scream for help, and looking around, he saw a tall, handsome, and very much excited girl rushing toward him at full tilt. My sister has fallen in the river, she cried to him. Come and help me get her out before she drowns. And turning back the way she had come, she dashed on ahead with Paul following. He had to bestir himself to keep up with her, which in itself was so unusual that he immediately began to feel interested and forgot all about being bashful. When they arrived at the river bank, he looked far down to see the, where the swollen waters of the big stream were rolling fast and deep, but not a sign of the sister could he see. She fell in ten miles upstream, the girl told him despairingly. I ran down this far, hoping to be able to get down to the river and catch her when the current brings her by. But the banks are so high and steep all the way I couldn't get near the water. Paul didn't say a word, but began working his very fastest, picking up great stones and logs and anything he could lay his hands on and throwing them down into the riverbed. It wasn't more than a second or two before the girl caught on to his idea and began doing the same thing. And he was surprised to see that she heaved over almost as much rubble as he himself did. So between the two of them, it wasn't very long, five or ten minutes perhaps, before they had dammed the river up tight, stopped the current, and raised the water until they were able to reach right out and grab the sister when she floated into sight. Of course, the girl was very grateful to Paul for saving her sister's life, and he thought a lot of her after seeing how quickly she caught on to his idea and how fast and well she could work. It was a match from the very start. And before long, they were married and as happy and contented as two bugs in a rug. Mrs. Paul was about the size to match her husband. It took 47 grizzly bear skins to make her a fur coat. That is, one of these short ones. And one of her skirts used up more canvas than a full-rigged ship. She was affectionate and lovable. And everyone said that Paul was mighty lucky to get such a wife. The only difference between her and other women was that of size. 
With her, the measurements were usually yards or rods instead of inches. As for Babe, the great blue ox, just where Paul got him has never been learned. It is thought that he secured him when but a calf, being attracted by his strange blue color, and reared him from calfhood with great care. The ox well repaid the kindness of his master, for he was with him through all his logging operations and was continually performing labors that could not have been done in any other way. The great blue ox was so strong that he could pull anything that had two ends and some things that had no ends at all, which made him very valuable at times, as one can easily understand. Babe was remarkable in a number of ways besides that of his color, which was a bright blue. His size is rather a matter of doubt. Some people holding that he was 24 axe handles and a plug of tobacco wide between the eyes, and others saying that he was 42 axe handles across the forehead. It may be that both are wrong, for the story goes that Jim, the pet crow, who always roosted on Babe's left horn, one day decided to fly across to the tip of the other horn. He got lost along the way and didn't get to the other's horn until after the spring thaw, and he had started in the dead of winter. The great blue ox was so long in the body that an ordinary person, standing at his head, would have had to use a pair of field glasses in order to see what the animal was doing with his hind feet. Babe had a great love for Paul, and a peculiar way of showing it, which discovered the great logger's only weakness. Paul was ticklish, especially around the neck, and the ox had a strong passion for licking him there with his tongue. His master good-naturedly avoided such outbursts of affection from his pet whenever possible. So here was Paul Bunyan at last, no longer just a husky youngster, but a man, full-grown and with a wife to care for. He was ready to embark upon his life's work, and having a pretty definite idea of what he wished to do, he decided to return to the part of the country where he had been born. More people were living along the coast and moving steadily inland. Sawmills were being built to supply the growing demand for lumber, and woodsmen were making greater and greater encroachments upon the ancient and far-reaching forests to provide the logs that were needed in ever-increasing quantities. Paul, foreseeing that with his great strength and his unequaled knowledge of the woods, he would have little trouble in getting plenty of chances to show what he could do packed his tools and other belongings, said goodbye to his parents, and, with his wife comfortably riding along on the broad back of Babe, set out for the town of his origin. Well, what do you know? Three chapters in the bag and a heap more on the way. Come on back to Farfar's Farfetched Fables to hear the rest. You won't want to miss a single episode. Far, far.